Hello, this is Rabbi Francis Nataf. Welcome to the 11th segment of my beta podcast series. We're going to soon move past the beta and into official podcast territory, but that's still going to be up in a few weeks. We'll be posting you about that soon. Nay, because I want to start by mentioning something that I mentioned at in, in the beginning of my Dvar Torah for this week, redeeming relevance on the parsha, And that's something that I uh, had to deal with in speaking about Rav Kook. Rav Kook is one of my absolute favorite uh, inspirations, leaders, rabbis, whatever you want to call it. It was all of the above. And in giving a presentation once about Rav Kook, uh, one of the things that I point out, I'm certainly not the only one to do it, is, is the fact that Rav Kook was able to see God everywhere. And therefore, his entire worldview, whatever he is looking at or discussing, is infused with godliness. And I've always been envious of that. I'm certainly something that I would like to emulate. But Rav Kook had the ability to seemingly not have to make too great an effort to accomplish such a thing. Now, Rav Kook's yard site is coming up in two weeks' time, so it's appropriate we speak about him. But what I want to speak about is related to something further that I discuss in this week's essay, and that has to do with finding God ourselves in the world around us. Meaning, what do we do if we're not Rav Kook? Uh, are we hopelessly lost? We're not able to find godliness in the world? Well, obviously, we know from personal experience that we do find God and godliness in the world. However, um, in this week's Parsha, there are two avenues that I mention, looking carefully at two Parshanim, two commentators on the Parsha, looking at two different uh, facet aspects of, of the Parsha, at the beginning of the Parsha, uh, Sforno mentions the notion of bracha and klala, that the Jews in the land of Israel don't experience normal nature. They experience either tremendous bounty or tremendous dirt. That God is always showing himself in the land of Israel. And uh, I, you know, like to, like all of us, connect this with current events. And certainly I'm not a prophet and can't tell you what God has in mind. But in terms of the coronavirus in Israel, we've experienced both ends of the spectrum, which is quite interesting. We've never been sort of in the middle. We've either experienced bracha, tremendously good results. Uh, and more recently, uh, klala, a very discouraging results. So that that uh, seems to be a part of our reality even today. That reality is a reflection of God's presence. Later in the parsha, I speak about the Nitziv's approach to a fruit tree, but I'm going to leave that for you, and I encourage you to read the Nitziv and to read this week's essay, again available at the Jewish Press, both online and the print edition. It's also available by subscription and by looking at my website. All of this is further in the week as the Parsha becomes closer to our reading on Shabbat. 
So uh, I encourage you to, after you hear this, look out for that and take a look over there as well. In any case, what I wanted to discuss now is some of the problems that we have in seeing God in the world that some of our great leaders in the past certainly did not, um, and that even today, thankfully, holier people are able to get beyond. But we come with a handicap in modern times, and this relates somewhat to the discussion that I had with you last two couple segments. Uh, let me start with a story to illustrate what I'm going to speak about. Uh, one of the great teachers of the previous generation, who I had the honor to study under for two years, uh, and that was Nechama Leibovitz, a tremendous Bible teacher who really revolutionized, I should say revolutionized, but rather reinvigorated the study of Tanakh in the Jewish people almost single-handedly in a time when nobody else was really doing it. Now, thank God, um, a lot more people are involved in the study of Tanakh and study of the Jewish Bible. Um, in any case, she was a very deeply religious woman, and alongside with her tremendous uh, teaching skills in terms of understanding Bible and how to interpret it, and what the commentators were doing, um, she would occasionally bring a story or a reflection to encourage us and to teach us not just texts, but also uh, religious inspiration. She told the following story about uh, pre-war Palestine, meaning pre-independence Israel, when the British were still in charge, and there was a lot of uh, violence going on during that period. Uh, Arab marauders would constantly fire on uh, Jewish buses, for example. Um, the Jews would use the bus system, the Egget system, which predates the state of Israel. Um, they would use it to go from one area to the other, and, and obviously there was, uh, even back then, a lot of Jews both in Jerusalem and in Tel Aviv, and this was a common route, and uh, the problem was that this route was surrounded by uh, Arab villages in certain places during the road, uh, along the road, and therefore it was a convenient place for sharpshooters to uh, shoot at these buses from, from very long distances from far away. And uh, obviously, it made it difficult to uh, apprehend them. So apparently, um, so she tells the story that the British were able to find a way to deal with these sharpshooters. That was the aid of uh, of hound dogs. That apparently the dogs would be able to smell smell the bullets and to trace them back uh, several miles to the village and to the actual uh, perpetrator of the shooting. And uh, apparently she was on a bus and she overheard two men speaking about this and one expressing how amazing it was that the dogs were imbued with such an amazing 
skill, such an unusual uh, power to have this type of smell uh, and to use it intelligently to uh, connect, again, the, the perpetrator with a bullet, um, in this case, in the service of good, in the service of protecting um, innocent uh, civilian Jews, uh, simply riding buses from one place to another. Uh, in any case, so one, one man was saying to the other how amazing and, and wonderful it is. I don't know if he uh, mentioned God, but certainly it was something that was obvious to my teacher, Nacham Levitz. But the other man answered to him, no, it's not so amazing, it's just instinct. So Nahama said to us, what had he changed by saying the word instinct? Simply by using this word, does that make it any less amazing? The fact that we can categorize it and put it into a, a thought structure that, uh, in fact, we see this with many animals, that they have uh, amazing things that they do. The fact that human beings call that instinct doesn't make it any less wondrous at all. And she was amazed by both the reaction of that man who mentioned instinct and even more so by the second man who said, oh, okay, well, it's instinct, so I guess it's really not so amazing. This is a type of uh, discourse that is the norm in our world, and it's a discourse that prevents religious people from expressing themselves religiously and creates an obstacle for us to see God in the world. Uh, that's to say that when we're speaking in public, when we're speaking to a stranger, uh, certainly if the stranger is not uh, identifiably religious, we feel we have to speak in a secular vein. In other words, we can observe that situation, we can see it happen, we can see a miracle happen in front of our eyes, and somehow it's impolite. Somehow it's inappropriate to mention God, to mention that it's miraculous, to mention that we're inspired, uh, that we feel awe at the moment. Um, and this is a sort of situation that has crept into a supposedly neutral state, uh, a state, uh, meaning most of our states, including the state of Israel for that matter, where um, the liberal order that was uh, created by governments already over 200 years ago, but uh, since then, um, to create a level playing field for all people, regardless of their religion. All that is very good. Obviously, uh, we want to be treated equally. However, uh, when it was first put into order, there was a, an agreement. In fact, it was an inter-Christian agreement that this didn't take away the assumption that everyone uh, understood that there was a God and were free and not just free, but was natural to speak about God, uh, certainly when looking at the natural world. Uh, somehow this is atrophied. I don't want to go too far afield with this, 
but one of the famous liberal philosophers, I mean, he passed away uh, already, but uh, basically post-World War II liberal political philosophers uh, was a man by the name of John Rawls. And essentially his position was that one cannot take religious values into the public square, meaning into a public discussion. He was speaking about in terms of, of policy, but I would suggest that trickles down to all of our public discourse. We're sitting next to the other person on the bus. We're uncomfortable mentioning God, partly because we're uncomfortable or we're meant to be uncomfortable or according to Rawls, we should not be invoking God in the realm of public policy even if the majority of Americans, for example, might believe that a certain thing is true because the Bible says so. According to Rawls, that's off limits because the ones who disagree are not going to be able to speak in the same language. In other words, you're speaking two languages and there's no possibility for discussion. Rather, everyone has to discuss in terms, discuss things in terms of things that we all agree upon. Now, the problem with that is that the secular public is an advantage. In other words, the atheist has no problem with this because there's nothing beyond the secular discourse for him to, uh, to be involved with. On the other hand, the religious individual, as uh, one scholar uh, mentioned, uh, a fellow by the name of Michael Perry, um, he says that um, the the religious person uh, what what uh, what uh, happens in such a situation is that by forcing his religious opinions at home would be to bracket uh, indeed says Perry indeed to annihilate herself precluding her from engaging in moral discourse with other members of society. In other words, a person may believe the Bible is what tells us that a certain thing is right or wrong. And somehow one has to annihilate oneself to uh, prevent oneself from being honest and straightforward about what it is that makes one believe what one believes. Uh, now I'm not speaking about what's the best tactic, but I'm speaking about what is allowed uh, again, there's no law against it, but uh, the philosophers by which most people uh, run their lives, certainly in the avenues, and the hallways that are most influential, uh, follow such an approach. And um, another religious scholar person by the name of Stephen Carter, a Yale law professor who happens to be black, um, says as follows in response to Rawls and uh, other people like Rawls, he says as follows, that uh, liberal theory may scoff at the idea that God's will is relevant to moral decisions in the liberal state. But the religious might reasonably ask why the will of any of the brilliant philosophers of the liberal tradition, or for that matter, the will of the Supreme Court, is more relevant to moral decisions than the will of God. 
continues Carter, so far liberal theory has not presented an adequate answer. By the way, when we're speaking about liberal theory, liberal theory is something that is true of conservatives as well as liberals. We're talking about a secular elite. And so I would suggest that playing into that game is an obstacle for us to see God in the world. If religious people feel strongly about seeing God in the world, and I think we should, I think it's terribly important that we see God in the, in the hound dog who miraculously is able, through his instinct, to trace bullets for miles at a time, or all sorts of other things. This week I was speaking about the, the tremendously good taste of a nectarine. That's a discussion. You can follow my Facebook page if you would like. In any case, all these things that exist in the world, whether they're a change in nature or whether it's the regular course of nature, God's hand is manifest in it. And we have to feel free not only to recognize it, but to speak about it and speak about it publicly. We should not be embarrassed any more than the secular person should feel embarrassed about his or her belief. So that's it for this week. And I hope you have a meaningful uh, week this week as well as next week and are able to try a little harder as we get closer to the beginning of the next year of Rosh Hashanah of the time we need to meet God in prayer in a more tangible and awe-inspiring way to try to see him uh, in our daily lives. And I wish you, again, a good week. We'll speak to you in two weeks' time.